Hey, it's Joey Thurman. I'm excited to bring you season two of the Fad or Future podcast. We live in a world where information is everywhere, easy to access, and sometimes not always accurate, especially in the health and wellness space, which is exactly why I created this show. There's two sides to every story, and I'm here to present both and let you decide, is it a fad or is it the future? Health fads come and go, but the science behind them is what makes them work or fail. I'm bringing the experts to you and putting the facts on the table so you can decide how and where to put your efforts in your own personal health and wellness journey. In this episode of the Fad or Future podcast, I have Iron Chef Judge Anya Fernaldon. Now, Anya was a former vegetarian, and then she started a regenerative farming practice and company called Belcampo Foods. Belcampo has organic, grass-fed, grass-finished meat and chicken and all sorts of animals. Wait a minute, she was vegetarian beforehand. I had a conversation with her, and there is a food now that I can't cook without getting a little nauseous. What are the three meats that you should never buy in a grocery store? Is organic actually organic? And what's wrong with our modern farming practices? And why is regenerative farming good? My conversation with Belcampo founder Anya Fernald on this episode of the Fad or Future podcast. All right. Welcome. It's Joey Thurman. And here's another episode of the Fad or Future podcast. I was going to start this podcast with a big piece of steak in my mouth or I don't know, maybe some ground lamb because I, have, you, Joey. I, I don't know. I have Anya Fernal in front of me. And so you are, you're the co-founder of Belcampo and we'll, we'll get into that, which is like high grade meat. And thank you guys for sending that to me. I appreciate that as part of this podcast. I like to try everything out. And when I get free food, even better, uh, you've been all around. You're a mom, you were a judge on Iron Chef, which was, you know, one of my go-to shows. And I've got a lot of friends, Chef Art Smith, um, know, know him oh, quite well. I, um, I, I trained Robert. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I trained Robert Irvine as well when he came to Chicago. Uh, I've been to James Beard Awards. So I'm quite familiar with the upper echelon of, of the, the food people. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad to have you on. But I did see on your Instagram you were, you were squatting it out today. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah. I do. A, I, um, I love working out. I don't do it as much as I want, like, like everybody. But um, I work. I, I use heavy weights. I do squats and deadlifts. I work out with a Bulgarian bag. And I box, um, so I have a heavy bag at home. Um, but I'm into functional movement, so I do a lot of medicine ball, Bulgarian yeah. bag, things. So, yeah, I started squatting, you know, as a rower in college, and I squatted and did weights mm. then. And then uh, I picked it up again about two years ago. Because, yeah. you know, I had two kids in six years, five years. So in that time, you know, your body really changes, and it took a minute for me to kind of get back on the horse. So about two years after I had my son, who's now four, I picked it up again. And, and now it's like, I think it's the most important thing for women to, to work on that lower, that whole, like the, the posterior chain. Um, I think a lot of people, especially women, I mean, they may just be my friend group, but like people kind of start to give up on it. Like, Oh yeah, I just have back pain and I'm, mm -hmm. you know, you can lift your way out of that. Yeah. Right. I, yeah. Most people out of can. It. Yeah, for sure. Most I mean. people can. Oh yeah. If I do squats and I injure my back and I'm, well, just do, do, do a lower weight. <laughs> until you don't injure, you know, like to me, it's a, but I think there's, you know, it's like there's a million excuses why people don't do things. Yep. Um, so it's, 
but it's definitely uh, something that's a huge part of my life is just in general movement. I love, I love working out, I love training, I love trying new things. All that stuff is, is a big part of my everyday. Yeah, I'm a guinea pig myself, so um, I appreciate one guinea pig to another. But yes, uh, obviously we're not talking about working out during this one. But I, I had this, I saw that in Instagram. Like I need, I need to mention that if she was squatting it out. So anybody listening, if you have yeah, well, back pain, I, you I, can figure it out. Well, yeah, you know, I started to put. You know, I've always worked out, and I've always, I'd say, I'm kind of like a baby biohacker just by my own interest and passion. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really talk about that side of my personality because I'm on Instagram, I'm like a culinary person, and I run a food company. Uh, as as my brand has evolved, I feel like in the past couple of years, we found more success about by being really true to our roots, which is just being really radical, revolutionary way of producing meat. Yeah. And part of that, I just figured, I kind of wanted to come out of like with my whole personality on my feed and stuff. So I started to put out pictures. I mean, obviously I'm not a fitness person, so I always feel a little bit like a poser, you know, Ah. but I think in some ways there's two goals for me. One is I really want to inspire women to push some, to not just do light weights and Pilates and stuff. I think maybe for some people it works great. Just like veganism might work great for a few people, but there's so much um, for women to, to strengthen bones and reduce osteoporosis through weightlifting. Mm -hmm. So that's a really big goal for me is just inspire women in my cohort to, to lift weights. And the other piece of it is that, you know, I am a culinary person and I, I want to show a different way of being culinary. Like Mm -hmm. I cook and eat for optimal health. Right. And, and, but that's also like emotional health. Like I cook and eat for like optimal, optimal, like sensual pleasure and enjoyment and, just that I, I want to have like this delight in eating and joy around food for me and my family. So I, I want to showcase that kind of like whole health component. Cause I feel like there's so much in the culinary world now where it's people who are really proud of being extremely unhealthy Yeah, yeah. and it's celebrated. And I think that's a head scratcher. Cause it's like, I feel like you're alienating a lot of people, <laughs> you know, it's like to be into food, you got to look like shit and, right. and be, you know, have a body age. that's like 20 years older than your actual age. <laughs> that's <laughs> what, if you look on the food network, that's what a lot of people look like. Mm-hmm. And then the people who look buff are either like anorexic food or smoothies. You know, like, <laughs> that yeah, doesn't well, actually align to real life, you know? Yeah. What's that that say? Never trust a skinny chef. Exactly. I mean, but it's like, there's the people on Instagram and stuff that are a lot of people I feel like are just talking about smoothies. I love, I don't actually love smoothies, but like Eh. the place for smoothies, right? But it shouldn't be here every day, you know? So there's this kind of paradox and I want to challenge that with how I show up. So I started to put more about like the wellness side of what I do. I just posted today a story about my supplements and stuff. It's like, why not just tell that side of the story too, so that you can be like, Hey, I'm really into culinary. I'm a cook and I love that side of my life, but I balance it with an aggressive wellness regime as well. Yeah, for sure. No, uh, I think that's great to see that. Um, I never get phone calls on this house phone, but apparently it's ringing now. Nolan. Well, my kids are like a bus in here. Yeah. Uh, Nolan, editor, if you're listening to this, cut that house phone out. Okay, we're good. Now we're moving on. All right. All right. So now you were a former vegetarian and now you run a high-end meat company. Let's say, you got to talk to me about that. Absolutely. So uh, I was a vegetarian because I love and love still animals. Yeah. And I read about how much grain animals eat and thought, wouldn't it be better if we gave that grain to humans and people who were starving and hungry? So my motivations for being a vegetarian were those two. Effectively, is this the best use of resources? So optimal mm-hmm. resource allocation and welfare, animal welfare. I, um, 
have always been interested in food. I started working in food right after college. I worked initially as a cheesemaker in Europe. And in that time, I you know, started working in animal agriculture. And within, I had been sort of tapering out of vegetarianism at that time, but still had big ethical concerns about meat. Yeah. And I uh, had a really radical health transformation when I was working in animal agriculture in Italy. And that had to do with eating a very high fat and high protein diet. And lots of just sort of minor things in my life got better. I had great energy. I was very positive and happy. Like just some things sort of like that bugged me vaporized. And I noted that at the time and really found that for myself, I thrive on a high protein, high fat diet. Hmm. Um, when I moved back to the U.S. in 2005, I was struggling with the meat that I found here. And I actually started um, my journey in meat by buying a whole cow for myself and friends and distributing that um, mm. illegally, you know, back in 2005, 2006. So um, we, I started buying whole pigs and whole cows just to be able to get high quality meat for somebody who loves to cook and also who likes, who thrives on eating a lot of meat. Yeah. So I also, when I moved back to the U.S., I had, I found I had a really, you know, with a high meat diet, I had a super inflammatory response. I gained a lot of weight. I was sluggish, lethargic. I didn't feel good. So I, I toggled the supply of meat. And then also in the U.S., you know, one thing I think is you just can't be casual about your food choices here yeah. or else they're likely to be very inflammatory and make you sick. Um, so that was a, you know, a learning that I had early in my return. But my journey to where I am now running a meat company absolutely started from personal health. Well, so, I mean, I know a lot of people, they, they get concerned about what's in their food and whether that's, you know, vegetables and wasn't washed properly or it's meat and the herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, all that sort of stuff. So why did you specifically start Bocampo? Because you, you wanted to make sure that you knew where everything was sourced from. I mean, what was the journey there? The goal of Bocampo was to offer a choice to consumers that answered every question that you have about meat. You're concerned about how animals are treated. You're concerned about how they're processed, how they die. Mm -hmm. You're concerned about the environment and the environmental impact. You're concerned about your own health when you eat it and your kids. Um, you're concerned about safety and traceability and cleanliness, right? Yeah. So the idea was let's create a product that just answers, checks every box answers every question, makes this like a no problem, slam dunk, easy choice. Yeah. So how is it different? I mean, you guys are, you know, grass fed, grass finished. And I know you, you talk about that, like being weary of buying certain meats at the supermarket and meats that you shouldn't buy at all. <laughs> and I know like I'll, I'll go and I'll buy like organic or whatever, but, uh, when your, your publicist sent me these notes, I'm like, oh man, I'm, I'm curious what I've been buying now. Yeah, so. Yeah, I mean, I basically, I'm pretty extreme on my criticism of what's uh -huh. available, I'd say, but I also know a lot. Yeah. And I've been in this industry for a while at this point, right? So I've seen a lot. Um, I think that many consumers really had their eyes open to how bad the meat industry is during COVID, right? Mm -hmm. With the crisis in the meat supply and the number of plants that were shut down for just like really egregious human rights issues. Right? right. And I mean, Lord, if they treat the people that way, how do they treat the animals? Yeah. Just reflect on that. Right. <laughs> yeah. You know, so that's the reality of, of animal agriculture in the U S it's terrible. 
it's been designed for optimal efficiency, right? Mm -hmm. So it's really good at one thing, and that's cheap meat. Meat's cheaper in the U.S. and more abundant than it ever has been. It's so cheap that we throw away almost half of what we produce in this country. Wow. It goes into waste, food waste. Because it's so cheap, right? Like right. we're not really incentivized to, to be very, like to treat it like it's something precious like our ancestors did. Um, so my products are from birth through processing, fully managed and owned by our company. We have our own slaughterhouse. We have our own ranches. We offer a degree of traceability that's top of class. There are other ranchers in the U.S. that do this, a couple, um, that you know you can you can find like a white oak pasture. There's a number of small producers as well, yeah. like the guy that's at your local farmer's market, right, has some version of this, um, albeit without their own slaughterhouse, you know. But by doing that, I am able to guarantee that the product is farmed regeneratively in a way that's carbon impact negative, so sequestering carbon from the environment through hmm. ranching. That's huge for you know those of us that are concerned about the environmental impact of our choices. And I'm also able to really offer the most in terms of security and safety. This is a clean product. We own it start to finish, soup to nuts. So I can vouch for every step of the way. If you get sick off a product in a conventional American grocery store, you know what you get is you get a check, right? Mm -hmm. It's a liability mindset. Yeah, that it's makes sense. You so don't get... Oh, I can trace it back. You know, it's like there's an outbreak of salmonella. You right. read it in the newspaper. You've read those stories. It's like, yeah, there's an outbreak in Des Moines and it's traced to one of three slaughterhouses and one of 15 food lots. It's like, congratulations, you know nothing. Right? <laughs> so if you're comfortable with that, if you're comfortable with the most, like, highest potential vector product that you're eating, most potentially dangerous coming from a system where nobody can tell you how and when you got sick and nobody can offer any security about that, Knock yourself out. Go to a grocery store. If yeah. you're not, you better get really proactive about where you buy your products. Yeah, so you say don't have don't buy chicken, pork, or turkey at the supermarket. What what's specific about those? I'm sorry, you just broke up for a second. Yeah, so you say you say don't buy chicken, pork, or turkey at the supermarket. Yeah. What is specific okay. about those three? So uh, chicken and turkey are the absolutely most consolidated, the poultry industry in the US has been the most radically consolidated of all the different animal agriculture industries. So there really is no scaled, good quality sourcing of poultry in the US. So I just say in general, all of your grocery store chicken and all your grocery store turkey is raised in confinement. Even if it's free range, there is a workaround for free range, which is simply you have to provide animals access to the outdoors, but they are not outdoors. So you can have a hoop house that's 90 feet long and have one 18 inch wide door and that qualifies as free range. So that, that's all that, all, that's all that means is they, they, the chickens need to compete to be able to get outside of their 18 inch door or whatever. I mean, it's like saying, are you fit if you have a membership to the gym or are you fit if you work out every day? Wow. I didn't know. Hypothetical access doesn't equate, right? Another yeah. thing is that these animals are often, um, even if they're labeled free range or they're organic, they are deep eat. So their beaks are clipped because they're under so much stress that they are pecking at each other oh, and pulling Jesus. their own feathers out. So it's a toxic and horrific industry. Now, here's what's really interesting about it. In the poultry industry in 1950, the average chicken in America took over a year to come to market. Today, in 2020, it's two and a half weeks to bring a chicken from a chick size to a full market size. Two and a half weeks. Cool. On our farm, it's eight to 10 weeks. 
And we're, we're not feeding, we're not using a very different, different species than like a Tyson. We use the same one at Cornish Cross. Yeah. And we're not using a radically different feed. You know, in our beef, we're using grass compared to corn. That's different, right? right. It's real different. If you eat right. spinach compared to Frios, it's real different in your body, right? Sure. In chickens, we're feeding them just grains. They're getting the same food as they do at Tyson. So what's the difference, yeah. right? And it's about environmental stress um, and antibiotic usage. So they're so just pumping them full of antibiotics and, and they're getting them out much faster. So another thing that you'll see on your chicken in the supermarket is that there's no antibiotics and there's a little asterisk, right? Which says no prophylactic antibiotics. And that means that you can't be giving them these antibiotics in anticipation of them hypothetically getting sick. Well, gosh, all you need is a veterinarian on your payroll and Tyson has literally hundreds of them that will say, because of these conditions that the chickens are in, they are at risk of getting sick right now. Really? And then you can dose them with all the antibiotics you want. And that is an abuse of the system that's been well-documented. There's, yeah. a, there's a great uh, book called The Meat Racket about Tyson, which lays out exactly how that is done. But all those chickens that say antibiotic-free, asterisk, that means we don't use any prophylactic antibiotics, but we do reserve the right to treat them if they get sick for reasons of compassion and all sorts of different things you might hear. Bullshit. Total bullshit. Wow. They're all prescribed antibiotics. And that's because antibiotics um, increase the weight gain by, you know, by 50 plus percent. Every day they put on 50 plus percent more weight. Antibiotics suppress the, the microbiome. And, you know, chickens, we share a lot of our DNA with them, right? The antibiotics have the same effect on us, right? And mm -hmm. that's the other crazy thing for me is thinking about health outcomes. We talk a lot about people's health associated with eating meat and eating animals, but there's also, you know, the issue of the health outcomes of people who live near these slaughterhouses. You know, they're, they're, they're something like double the frequency of low birth weight and stillborn babies. If you wow. live within three miles of these, there's much higher incidence of asthma and obesity, right? So it's the same things, right? It's the same stuff in the water and the air that's mm -hmm. pumped into these farms that, you know, just has a huge impact. You know, I yeah. look at the maps now of COVID in the U.S. and it's like, there's massive clusters around where there's confinement farms. It's no surprise. The health outcomes for humans living near these farms are terrible. And I, I, it's like, you can care about that or not, but I'm just saying between yeah. how the animals feel, how the people who live near them feel and how you feel, this should be the number one thing you're concerned about in terms of how you're changing your diet. Yeah. I mean, I, I think even regardless of if you're an animal person, if you're a vegan, if you're whatever, like the health of you know, your family around, and, and your friends is huge. Like if, if you're gonna care about one thing, like obviously you should care about animals and, and the treatment of them. I'm not, I'm not saying that, that you should not, but absolutely. Like if, if your family is living within that, I had no idea, like the, the I, I knew that it was a higher incidence. I just didn't really know the numbers on that. So now you guys, you practice regenerative farming and you say it's beyond organic. What does that mean? Because I'm sure that you're, you get all sorts of people say, talking about the environment and like that's, that's always the knock, right? and meat and like greenhouse gas and you can look at all all these sort of stats and you look at any sort of sort of vegan and love all my vegan friends out there uh and you look at them and that's one of the things that they always go to is that you know the greenhouse ga gas effect and, and the farming industry and agriculture so first off they're totally right the confinement farming and feedlots have enormously negative impacts on the environment mm -hmm. and Somewhere between 96 and 98% of American beef is produced in those systems. And the data is right, okay? They're terrible for the environment. 
where the data is not right is that's 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 one way of producing it, right? And it's a conflation to say that they're all the same. Beef, like ours, is produced in a way that's actually positive for the environment. It takes carbon out of the environment and puts it into the soil. So regenerative agriculture as like a, a way of thinking is the idea that agriculture could be a positive contributor to the health of the environment. And the, it's, it's more common to human history to have a regenerative approach than have a non-regenerative approach. In more recent human history, farmers were custodians of the land. If you owned a couple acres, you were pretty damn sure that your great-great-grandson was going to be farming those acres and living there with his family. Like there was a mentality. Now there's traditional agriculture in areas where they had really unlimited resources, like on the edge of forests and things where there was slash and burns. So it's not totally true that it's always regenerative traditionally. So there's always that, you know, when you make a big statement. But broadly, most agriculture had conservatorship at its, at its core. Right in the same way that traditional hunting cultures also had conservatorship as before, not because they were like woo tree huggers, but because they were concerned about the next generation having access to the same resources because they wanted their progeny to survive and thrive. Yeah. Right, so traditional hunters would take you know the the stag out of the the herd, allowing the next male to assume dominance in the herd. Right, they wouldn't be taking babies, and they wouldn't be like there was ways that we worked with nature. Regenerative agriculture is the same way. We would take animals to where the grass was green and move them. Well, you know what else happens like that is just how deer and other wild ruminants move. They go to where the grass is green. They do not, you'll never see a wild animal eating a crop down to the core unless they're desperately hungry or fenced in, right? So in our case, we're moving animals from pasture to pasture in a way that mimics the way that ruminants move naturally through nature. And what else is happening when they're doing it? They're pooping, right? And so they're dropping their manure, which is rich in nitrogen. It also contains a lot of seeds from various wild things that they're eating. Mm -hmm. So that's a nice, it's like we're, you're dropping seeds in a natural um, organic fertilizer pack. And they're also, you know, these are animals that are 1,500, 1,600 pounds, and their hooves are aerating. So their hooves are serving kind of like as a natural tractor, digging in to the earth and allowing the seeds to you know, land in places where there's a little depression, water can go there and it can grow. We're also not tilling, okay? So we're not going through diskiness or plowing. Um, if we were to disk or plow it, we will break the root systems. The root systems are crucial to carbon sequestration. So all those actions as a package and all this recap them, they're moving animals around and not overgrazing, right? Which allows the root systems to still thrive. Yeah. Um, in that movement, we're naturally dropping fertilizer, naturally slightly aerating, et cetera. Um, and then not tilling and not breaking these root systems. Those are the fundamentals of a, of a regenerative approach to animal husbandry. Now, there's other regenerative types of agriculture. You can do regenerative sugarcane or regenerative tomatoes, like they all have sort of different mandates, but that's broadly in my industry in ranching, how you can be carbon positive. That makes sense. So the cattle are walking around, stepping on their own shit, fertilizing things and they're good. So, you know, people, there's a lot of talk about cow shit in the world, right? And yeah. negative because it's, you know, in great density and that, you know, how can cow shit on a pasture be good for the environment? That's the opposite of what we hear, methane and cow yeah. farts. Yeah. Well, it's like, you know, think about it. If, if you were to take, you know, any amount of, let's just imagine this is a little gross, but like <laughs> if in your yard, right? Um, you know, let's say my son pees in the yard all the time. I'm fine with it. If you pee in one place one day and one day, one place <laughs> days later, it's okay. 
if my son all of a sudden was to fill a kiddie pool with urine, it would be quite a different thing, right? Yeah. You have an aggregation of something, small amounts spread out, it's fine, right? It's actually probably good, right? There's some magic in there. Sure. But if you have a, you know, two gallons of urine sitting in one pool, it's disgusting. And it's going to start to be toxic. And you're going to say, don't go near that. You might get sick, yeah. right? It's the same thing. It's just urine, right? But it's, it's a different, there's a concentration of biological material that will facilitate a bacterial load. And that there has to be enough of it all in one place. And it needs to be in a place where there's not enough of a natural microbiome, like in the soil, to absorb it and take the nutrients in it and break it down. Right. So when you look at confinement agriculture, you have acres and acres of manure, acres and acres of manure and urine mixed together that are just pooling there. Right. That's what the problem. It's not that manure and urine from animals in and of themselves is toxic. Lord, I mean, how would, how, how would the earth have evolved? That was the case. Right. Right. But it, when you have a lake of it, it sure as hell is toxic. <laughs> right. So it just we don't. We have, you know, 3,000 cows. That's a lot of poop and pee every year. Yeah. But that's spread out over 30,000 acres, and they're moving around, and they're cycling through. It's just a different game. If we were to have them all in one big cement line pen, we would have a toxicity problem. Yeah. How many acres do you guys have? We manage 30,000 acres. Okay. So the, uh, on average. We're just now starting, like, partner farms as well in our yeah. region. We're at the real heart of California cattle country, and Nor Nor, it's called Nor Nor Counts. It's not. They think this is where I am in the Bay Area is like Southern California. It's a different, it's a very different culture right in the border of Oregon. Okay. And up there, um, we actually have a number of partner firms that we're working with to bring them into our regenerative system. Yeah. Some, most of them are already there, um, honestly, and pretty meaningfully, but we're getting them certified and doing some next steps with them. So once you start to add those in, the acreage becomes pretty meaningful. And that's the real end game for Bell Campo is like how many acres can we put into proper regenerative documented processes? Um, at what point do you start really making a dent on the 90 something percent that you talked about? Oh my God. It's that's such a good question. Um, it's daunting. Yeah. It's daunting. There's such a journey ahead. You know, it's, it's like, it's, it's so funny to me because in my industry, in the smaller states of like organic, we're big, we're big fish. Like it's, Oh, you're Bill Campbell. It's like a big deal, but it's nothing. We do no volumes compared to the bigger industry. Yeah. which is one way to look at it on good days. It's endless opportunity. And other days it's totally overwhelming. You know, I think animal agriculture could crush our environment in the long term. I also, you know, looking at COVID, you know, COVID came from the abuse of animals, right? And it came from confinement of animals in wet markets. And SARS came from confinement pigs farms, I think. Maybe it was swine flu. But the past three big ones, COVID, SARS, and um, swine flu all came from confinement. They came from animals and they came from animal abuse, like animals caged together yeah. um, with other species and cross-species contamination and people eating the meat from animals that had been really confined. And so to me, it's not only am I afraid for the environment, but I also feel like the next, you know, mega flu, mega issue, mega virus we're going to have is most likely going to come from animal ag. Yep. Uh, well, hopefully we can stave that one off because 2020 has been a new level. Uh, as my wife and I say, is like, what level of Jumanji are we in right now? Like, yeah, oh, exactly. wait, okay, COVID. All right, riots, murder hornets. All right, what's coming up next? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, All I can do is laugh, right? It's like yeah. COVID is the year you're not allowed to make any jokes. <laughs> <laughs> 
everything is so serious. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's funny anymore you, you, at yeah, all. Like you I, can't make jokes about anything. No. Nope. Because it's like I feel like if I'm like, what's going to happen next, and it will be like flesh <laughs> locusts, it'll be like, nope. Here they are. <laughs> yeah. You made that happen. <laughs> uh, all right. So let's talk about grass-fed, grass-finished. Why is that so much better? And I know I was, can you just talk about the differences? Because I know there's a lot of misconceptions when people say, when they think yeah. organic, or they're like, wait a minute, this is grass-fed beef, this is grass-finished beef, but then you've got both. Mm -hmm. So grass finishing refers to the final two months of an animal's life. And um, two months can make a huge difference. Actually, there's a couple of weeks to make a big difference. So there's excellent research out of Chico State University here in California by a woman named Cindy Daly, who's in, uh, in their agriculture department. You know, it's one of the premier agricultural universities in the U.S. So it's very good data that suggests, uh, that shows conclusively that less than a week of finishing on a non-grass substance in the end of a cow's life will create a meaningful difference in the omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. Mm. So if you're, so it, people who say there's no difference, there's a massive health difference. And um, I'm actually very close to putting up on our website regular monthly tests of our omega-3 to omega-6 ratio as part of our full assurance for customers about what we're doing. Um, so we're at a one to 1.3 ratio, which is so bomb. You know, if you put corn into a diet, you'll get to one to 30 ratio of um, omega-3s to omega-6s. So that's just, that's just inflammatory. Yeah. That's like eating a, that's like eating a you know a couple of tablespoons of, of uh, canola oil. Yeah, that's so. Anybody listening, like we need omega three and omega six, but if you have a high propensity of omega six to omega three, that's when that inflammatory response will happen. So one to one is actually a very good ratio. One to one is the optimal ratio yep. for human health, and one to thirty is the bioavailability in the American diet. One to three. So you got to. That's why I say like you can't just opt in to. Uh, to the American diet without a hugely critical eye and be healthy. You know, you have to be really aggressive about creating a different kind of lane for your own choices. So back to grass-fed and grass-finished. Cows are ruminants. They have five stomachs that help them take really low-density food, grass. Low-density means it doesn't have many calories per ounce, and turn it into delicious meat, right? Muscle, musculature. Mm -hmm. You and I, we're a monogastric, okay? We only have one stomach, monogastric, one stomach. Pigs, chickens, also monogastrics. Cats are monogastrics. Carnivores are monogastrics, right? Omnivores are monogastrics. Ruminants are not monogastrics. They have lots of different stomachs, and they're, they've been built and evolved to eat the stuff that nobody else wanted to eat, right? They got <laughs> the bottom of the totem pole. So they're super adept at, at, at converting pretty low-quality stuff into incredibly great musculature. Yeah. When you feed them corn, you're feeding them a very, very maladaptive diet. And that means that they have a strong inflammatory response um, and they're often very sick, right? So the response for them, I mean, it'd be akin to like, you know, you, you obviously eat a healthy diet um, and I eat a pretty healthy diet. It's like if you or me from one day to the next was just to eat straight up McDonald's, how long till we felt sick and our body started to change? I feel I mean, like 24 hours, right? Yeah, I would say if it takes four to six hours to digest like a high fat meal. So if I had like a double quarter pounder with cheese, which I used to get all the time, two or three of them, two to three hours after, I'm going to feel like I'm going to vomit just because my body is just not. Your body's going to reject it. So with, yeah. with beef, 
they go, if they're fed on grass through, I mean, most operations put them onto corn at around six months, seven months. Sometimes it'll be nine months, 10 months, because when on corn, they'll go through puberty way faster. Their whole adolescence will be compressed. They'll um, be able to, because after puberty, just like humans, cows can put on fat a lot faster after puberty. So they'll get onto this fast track towards fat, right? And there's some interesting analogs for the human experience in America too, right? We basically have created like an obesogenic environment for cows. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what our system is like. So um, they'll get on this fast track, they'll put on much of weight, and they're ready for harvest at 16 months compared to 26, 27 months in a system like ours. Now, during that cow's life, it's going to have eaten some grass because cow-calf operations are the first phase of life. You basically keep a mom and keep on impregnating her every year, and then she drops a calf every year. You usually get you know, somewhere between like four and eight calves from her um, in her life cycle. That's a cow-calf operation. It's the... It's the first step in the American beef industry. Ours is integrated. We have our own mother herd, but most operations will just specialize in one things. So those mother operations tend to be on very low quality land because basically the moms will need seasonal nutrition, but they can actually stay healthy enough on a pretty minimal diet. They'll walk around and eat whatever's there, but they don't need to necessarily put them on improved pasture because you're never going to be marketing their meat. Okay. Yeah. So they'll um, pump out the calves and during that time, they'll be on dirt usually. So they're, they're going to, and they'll be fed hay or whatever kind of ration to supplement whatever natural nutrition they have. So there's a phase in the whole beef industry nationwide, cow calf, where they are in grass. So you could technically market pretty much any beef in America as grass fed at some point in its life. So there's a lot of cynicism in that because there's people who are being extremely manipulated about their marketing to say that grass fed um, and claim that meat is grass fed when it really needs to be grass finished. So the, the word you're looking for is grass finished. Okay. The reason I say uh, that chicken and turkey are kind of concerning in the grocery store is that there's no scaled kind of alternative um, where there's a high quality pasture product available. Now in beef, there are scaled available merchants that sell a grass finished ground beef. The challenge for the customer is that usually in the grocery store, your selection is very limited. So if you find a grass-fed and finished product, bonus points for organic, it's typically going to just be a frozen cube, right, of ground beef. So it's available, but there's not many cuts available. And that's where we come in, where we're focused on, and many other smaller operations too, like the farmer's markets and some of the, if you're living in an urban area, there's probably a super hip fun butcher shop that's buying direct and able to do it. But in our case, we're creating an online marketplace where you can buy every damn cut from every species, all of this really pinnacle, super high quality. So it is available though. And also, you know, you can, you can really you know, find, I think even in the, pretty much every grocery store now has at least one, you know, product that's like grass-fed, grass-finished because there is that consumer that's aware of that. Yeah, and you're right. I think the only time that I ever saw that was some sort of ground beef. I don't ever remember seeing that. Even when I, I mean, when I used to actually go to the grocery store, I don't know, yeah. months ago, um, pre-COVID, yeah, I would always try to look for that. And it was even Whole Foods or Trader Joe's that I was going to, that for the most part, I wouldn't see that in, in any other packaging. And it didn't, didn't really occur to me until actually you guys sent me all that stuff. So quite yeah. interesting. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I think a lot of us are just kind of, we are not aware how low the bar is, right? Yeah. Like that's something I've learned a lot in the past couple of years too, just also because we do sell some of our products in grocery channels. Like how many people have their hands in the till mm -hmm. when something gets to you in the grocery store? 
So really there's a big disincentive for products like mine where our cost of ingredients are very high mm-hmm. to actually be in the grocery channel because it's too expensive for us, right? So a lot yeah. of premium products like mine, they just opt out of grocery and work in direct channels because otherwise we can't be profitable. So that's like grocery stores in general, it's kind of like a disincentive um, for them to have these really high quality products. Yeah, and now that I think of it, so people are kind of aware of now like the low fat or these packaged foods that have all these different claims on it. And I think more and more the public is aware that, okay, this could be a lot of bullshit that's written on these packages or heart healthy or whatever. Like, what do you mean? There's sugar laden cereals, heart healthy for me. But then I don't think we ever really think that the meat that we're purchasing could have claims that are false or that they're getting Mm -hmm. around from. So, uh, I mean, I... And more enlightened from listening to you. So that's really interesting. And I hope people, that people can really take a chance to, you know, look at their email, whether it's then you're purchasing it from you or, uh, you know, some farmer's market, something like that. Now, where do you feel like the future of your industry is heading? Where do you hope it can head? I'm interested in the continuing um, drive towards veganism. I see an extremism in protein right now where I think a lot of people are just deciding to opt out of protein, of natural protein, because it's so complex. So I'm interested in that. I think that many people do not physically thrive on a low protein diet. Mm -hmm. So I think it's difficult. I I mean, most people, I think, on a vegan diet have struggled with energy levels, struggle with recovery. So the factors that drive people towards veganism could also hypothetically draw them towards a product like mine, mm-hmm. where you pay a little bit more, um, but you're getting something that you can really feel good about. So I'm hoping that these trends that I'm seeing about veganism continuing to grow and interest in, in, in meat, in why meat's bad, I hope will open people's eyes to a possibility that meat can be good. You're probably gonna eat less of it because it's gonna cost more. Um, but it's, it actually, you can, you can have that energy. You can have that great recovery time. You can feel that vitality that we feel when we eat protein that's natural and, 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 and actually still feel really good and uncomplicated about your choice. Mm -hmm. Right. So I'm hoping for that, but it's, it's a challenging moment. You know, I also think that with, you know, getting back to the question of like the culinary culture in the U S being so focused on kind of indulgence. Something I think is great in COVID is the number of people who are, who are um, cooking at home. Yep. And I think I, when you cook at home, like I get this experience, a lot of people mm-hmm. saying to me like, oh, I cooked your chicken. And it's like, I was a really good cook. You know, like it made me cook better. Like yeah. my stuff tastes so much better. Or I made a recipe that I've been making for years, but I used your pork shoulder and it was like twice as good as it's ever been. You know, so I think when you, you, know, you look at a lot of American meat cookery now, it's tons of sauces. Mm-hmm. All those sauces have lots of sugar and canola oil and garbage in them. But why do we sauce things so heavily? Well, it's because we have very flavorless meat. Yep. And uh, we have meat that also we're so afraid of that we overcook it to kill any potential pathogens. Mm. That sucks. You know, like... <laughs> We're so afraid of our meat having E. coli that we overcook it all. <laughs> like that's the craziest thing ever. Yeah. yeah. It's right. Kinda, it's kind of nasty when you think about it. I mean, think about it. That'd be like, you, you know, you, you buy a car and you're like, you know what? It's, it's so dangerous. I'm only going to go half a block. It's like, well, you know what? what wait a second. We'll just get a car you trust. Yeah. You know, like what, why even have it? Why spend the money? 
why not just opt out? Yeah, it'd be a, be a no brainer. Like, why would you buy something that is so unsafe that your use case is super limited? That's crazy, right? So cooking beef, you know, the USDA recommendation is 165. You know, it's yummy, 125. Mm. What happens in those 40 degrees of span between 125 and 165? E. coli dies, salmonella dies, listeria dies. Where do those things come from? Salmonella, listeria, E. coli, they come from shit on your meat, right? So like basically what you're opting into when you buy cheap meat is you're going to have to cook the heck out of this because it's likely to have poop on it. Mm. It gives, a, gives uh, a new meaning to eat shit. It's like there, there's just this question to me where I say, Americans, stand up for your rights here. Yeah. You don't have to eat meat that's got manure in it, like oh. that has potential pathogens in it. Um, there, it's just a, it's a crazy losing, it's a lose-lose bargain that we've made. Yeah. And so I'm optimistic that, that people will get hip to this. And I think that cooking is part of it. Because I think if you eat your chicken at a restaurant and it's covered in barbecue sauce and hot sauce and has fried crap all over it, it's like, okay, that's like, maybe you don't really understand, you don't really taste the meat. But if you buy my chicken and you buy a grocery store chicken, like you have an organic grocery store chicken, and side by side, you'll be, what? Like, how is this so different? It's the flesh is firmer, it's darker, um, it doesn't have these huge oversized breasts. The whole thing is completely different physiology, right? And honestly, you're gonna wanna look like my chicken, not like the Trader Joe's chicken, right? You're gonna wanna look like my chicken. It's muscular, it's lean, it's taut. I mean, it's a beautiful bird. So it's just like, you look at the, I think if you're touching product more yourself, you'll get a much better sense of quality and be prepared to really make a, you know, a, better, um, a better choice. Yeah. My daughter has decided to practice harmonica upstairs. Right? It's, it's, it's okay. It's, it's nice. Back, back, I, I do. It's good. <laughs> it's okay. I, I, I want to look like a beautiful bird while I'm listening to the harmonica. <laughs> that's kind of what we do here on the weekend. Oh, that's hilarious. All right. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find you? Where, where can they find more about your product? Um, Belcampa.com has a full range of all of our products, including the chicken. Um, and then I am on Instagram at, at BelcampoMiko, and then myself personally is at OnYourFernal. Okay, so if you want to see her squatting it out, go, yeah. check, go check her out on Instagram. Today I squatted and I roasted chicken, so it really it is, it is all authentic. That's impressive. Nice job. <laughs> all right, I'm Joy Thurman. This is another episode of the Fat or Future podcast. Don't be a fatty, F-A-D-D-Y. Be a part of the future. Take care. <laughs> I bet you will never look at chicken the same, will you? Oh, you gotta cook the poop out of it. Disgusting. Thanks, Anya, for coming on, and thank you for that shipment of delicious meat. Hey, my plant-based and vegan friends, I'm sorry. It was delicious, though. I did cook it with some grass-fed butter. Yum. Make sure you tune in to the next episode of the Fatter Future Podcast. I promise you don't want to miss it.